Lights, camera, action. Today, we have with us Tas Mikos, formerly known as Anastas Mikos, although I know we call you Tas, and me, we'll call Charlie, of course. Uh, Tas has been uh, uh, a cinematographer for over the past 30 plus years. I've personally known Tas for the past 20 plus years. Uh, uh, when I met him, when he shot the film Mona Lisa's Smile. He's a great visual artist, a camera operator to start off with in his early career, a director of photography since I've known him, and member of the American Society of Cinematographers. May I introduce to you the great Tas Mikos. How you doing, Tas? I'm well, Charlie. How are you doing? In, the, in what we like to call these troubled times. They are troubled times, right? I mean, you know, uh, uh, I've been doing these, uh, uh, these Zoom podcasts since the lockdown. I've done quite a few of them on Zoom. But when we began and I did my first episodes, we did all of them in studio up and right up until uh, 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 the lockdown. So the new normal is this. We've gotten all gotten used to it. But I look forward to the day that we can go back into our cozy little Brooklyn podcast studio again. And, and I, I would think so, because I do think it's a different dynamic. Uh, I think that human interaction uh, is what, you know, separates us from other species. And the fact that we uh, also are in a collaborative art form, the idea that somehow we're supposed to be able to collaborate over a video tube picture um, is, is certainly not my cup of tea. Before we were talking about being survivors and um, we survived all sorts of changes in our industry. And I think this whole Zoom thing is gonna go by the wayside. Um, having, having done a couple of projects this way, doesn't work. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting, you know, that we're, you know, when I did my first one, we started to refer to it as, you know, as we progressed as the new normal. But, and I've been doing a lot of projects in post-production that I've been running where we do our collaborations on Zoom or Evercast or some collaborative form of video conferencing. And there are so many, uh, many companies are, are using just uh, their own, their own uh, propriet proprietary and some are doing uh, Microsoft Teams. There are so many of these, but the reality is at the end of the day, nothing beats being in person and doing things in person. Uh, uh, this, uh, this has been a, a, a trial, and also collaborating separately has been very, uh, been very challenging, even in post. I'm sure it has been in post. I mean, I, I've done a couple of post timings this way. And, um, you know, part of it, the collaborative process is to, you have to be in a room to understand the innate cues that your collaborator gives you. So it's not only verbal. It's, it's actual the shuffle of the head or the sigh or the joke in between or the, hey, let's take a break or do I want a chicken sandwich right now? Um, sort of sensibility about what we do. I mean, I, I'm specifically referring to like doing a DI uh, and trying to do a DI this way. And it was, it was a nightmare. Yeah, it works if you have to do it, you know? I mean, i.e., here we are but it's certainly not ever been my choice. No. Would it be yeah, at all? 
No, I understand completely. I, I want to go sideways for a moment just because I like to go sideways periodically. You've been living on a sailboat during the lockdown. And yes. I, and I know that... The this East, is not my sailboat. I know it's like... No, you were not my sailboat. You were on. You were. You were in in Manhattan, I believe. I was. Um. Yes. Uh. At the big May, middle of May, I decided to. Uh, I keep a boat down in Chesapeake Bay, thirty-seven foot boat, so it's comfortable enough to single hand a sail by myself. And so, I decided since we were a not working, b had a project that fell apart, like everybody did. Uh, I would uh, retreat to the sea. Um, as Melville said, you know, uh, when there was a cold November in my soul. Um, and you've, so, lived, you've lived on sailboats over the, I mean, you've lived on your boat before over the years. I have, but not for this length of time. You know, um, I was, uh, you know, our governor asked us to socially isolate. And so I did. Took uh, and, I went, and, I, and I went out to sea for a while and spent um, a good solid 12 weeks, I think. So it was quite grand. It was uh, a little bit of a tour and um, an interesting reflection on nature and our place within it. And and you've been a, 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 a an enthusiast of sailing for 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 as long as I've I've known you. How long have you been uh, doing? I know that you're. I mean, we, we're going to get into clearly. This is we're not going to talk about sailing this whole podcast. But I I'd love to hear more about. <laughs> Your your passion uh, uh, of of sailing as uh, uh, as a part of your life that that sits separately from being a, a visual artist and a cinematographer. Well, uh, two things. One of them is I think there's a um, part of it has to do with my heritage. I, I, I am Greek and Russian, a first generation American, um, and I am influenced and was influenced very much by my father's country, which was Greece, uh, and in terms of their relationship with the sea. Um, it's a, it's a ancient, ancient culture where their symbiosis, if you will, is, is with, with nature and particularly the ocean is in the gene. It's in the mythology, it's in the history. Um, it is who the Greeks are. So um, I got interested as a very young person. And in fact, at a young age, I think I was a seventh grader, um, I sailed the, the seven seas on a tanker working um, as a apprentice mate on the, on the chief mate's watch, um, going New York, Venezuela, Rotterdam, all sorts of places. Um, so part of it is is imbruted, I think, in 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 my psyche, um, and the other part of it is metaphorical. You know, there's a metaphorical interest to um, what is a horizon, and what does it mean, and what does it mean to be going forward, and what does it mean to be going forward, uh, trying to control forces outside of yourself, which is nature. You know, I mean, on a sailboat. Um, you have to be part of nature and understand her or our world in order to progress, in order to progress physically through space, uh, to get from A to B in some sort of, you know, safe fashion, you have to be part of that world. So your senses become very acute, um, that you otherwise wouldn't have. 
and don't train, I think, in modern society. Uh, I think we just like to jump in our Teslas and, you know, and hit autopilot and uh, we show up. So there is a prehistoric, if you will, sensibility to being out that way in a fragile boat, in an ocean or sea or river, in a fragile state and understanding the, your own fragility in the world. Um, and that's what kind of draws me to it. And yeah, it's great fun and you can go diving off the boat and you can do all the other stuff that goes with it, you know, but um, it, it does fire a different synapse in, in my process. So uh, there you go. Fantastic. I love it. Well, we're, 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 we'll, 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 we'll perhaps return to these thoughts, but one of the things <laughs> I want to go to... These are very, very, very deep thoughts for a uh, Thursday afternoon, but let's go for it. Why not? You know, I mean... Why uh, not? I mean, well, I mean, you know, one of the things that you mentioned whilst talking about your passion for sailing is is your uh, 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 your, your Greek heritage uh, and, and, and where where your your roots come from but you said greek and 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 russian i guess is what you said right i did russian mother you both come share and and what you know i i know very little about your uh your early life i mean we we've worked together on on films going back uh to the the late 90s early 2000s but i i don't know very much about your your origins and your connection to the uh to the worlds from where your family came. Tell me a little bit about your, your, your Greek heritage. Well, as I am Greek and Russian, um, I have a, um, what now in my later years know as an a unusual childhood, but when we're children, our reality is the norm. So it, we don't, I mean, you know, you grew up in Europe as well. So y you understand that sort of, um, separation that you have from others that had a, had a different lifestyle growing up. And the sense is that when you're a kid, whatever your parents do is normal, you know? So my mom, who was Russian, uh, was a nightclub singer and she raised me with her brother uh, for many years, uh, who was also a, he's a musician, he was a musician. Um, they both passed on. Um, and so the Russian side of my family are, were artists and uh, Russian immigrants. Um, I have a twin sister. Mom raised her and myself as well. And um, my father was a um, entrepreneur. A, a maritime entrepreneur is the best way to put it. And the entrepreneurial spirit, spirit is, you know, in the sense of being very successful. Um, at times in his life and not being very successful. Um, so we as kids, and the reason I was with my mother most of the time is, you know, it was Greek and Russian love that uh, they couldn't live together and they couldn't live apart. So they finally got together when I was 17 or 18 um, in terms of being a settled long-term couple. But um, yeah, so growing up meant, um, 
periods at, in Greece with my Greek family, you know, with my aunties and my uncles and at times with my mom and certainly with my father. And then um, the rest of the time here in the United States, uh, mom would be gigging in Miami and we'd be moving down there. Mom would be gigging in New York, would be up in New York, you know, mom, mom, wherever mom gigged, that's where we were. So I had a childhood that had a lot of different schools involved. Um, and it, opened me up to a world that was far bigger than other kids of that age might have had. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the basics of, 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 of childhood over there. And what it does though is it establishes a familiarity with the non-permanence of a situation. Yeah, because uh, of constant moving, and much of my, uh, much of the reasons I was drawn to the film business, particular feature filmmaking, is it's also temporal nonsense of permanence that that we have when we get on a project. You know, um, that we we have a very specific task in hand. Our task in hand lasts for X number of weeks. Um, if it's really huge, it lasts for, I guess, X number of years. But for the most part, uh, it's weeks and months. Uh, and you bond deeply with your collaborators. Um, and then you hope to, find the, hope to find them again on the next one, or you're glad to see the back of their heads and <laughs> when the show is over. So there, there was an obvious connection between what I do and why I do it. Yeah, because you had to adapt throughout growing up. I mean, I, I remember this living in Belgium as a kid. You know, people, I mean, my father was a, an exec, so, so we lived in Brussels, and, but most of the people that I knew were a combination of kids that moved every three years in the diplomatic corps or, or people who were stationed for periods of time as expats in one city. I was in Brussels, but whatever, and moved everywhere. So, I mean, I had friends, like I had friends in the, who were, who I grew up with that were, whose parents were in the, or whose fathers were in the, the Canadian diplomatic corps or, or otherwise that had grow, had lived one place for three years at a time, three brothers born in three different places, and then ultimately making it back to their home country as adults later on in their life. I mean, they, they, we learned not to feel the stability of one town in one place and constantly adapting and making new friends and new relationships, but also adapting to, to new scenarios, whether you stayed stationary or you were one of those people, which it sounds like you were, who actually did the moving itself because you moved around a lot, right? Again, I, I want to say, <coughs> excuse me, that um, it, uh, it comes with baggage for sure. Um, and at the same time, it opens doors because um, I, I do believe that we, I've always continued to travel uh, ever since I was a child and I still continue to travel today. And I was just thinking in the last, you know, the COVID thing has shut me down. But I mean, in the last year, I've been from everywhere from Poland, Greece, Namibia, Mozambique, South Africa, a Mexico City, um, all around the United States, and this is in the last 15 months. Um, yeah, in the last 15 months, actually. 
Uh, and so I was shut down for six months with COVID, but even then I got on my boat. And what it brought me to believe is that people are, are the same all over the world, that we actually want the same things, um, you know, and I think that's um, really important to understand and, and to, to, to think about in, in these what we call troubled times um, in, in both politically and in, in, in our health is that uh, we all want, um, you know, we all want, we all want love. Um, we all want the best for our family. We all want kindness and we all want it reciprocated no matter where I've been in my, in my travels. And I have traveled the world to a hundred odd nations, you know, and yeah. literally, like I said, from the deserts of Namibia to the, to, you know, the Zimbabwe, Zambia. You shot in South Africa Yeah, I shot in South Africa to, you know, to Hong Kong, to wherever, you know, I mean, that, that's sort of the a common commonality of humanity. Um, and I think those of us who don't recognize it or those who don't leave there in, tiny because i'm going back to that thought uh, those who don't leave their entire tiny little in uh, insular existence particularly as children and then as adults don't understand that so therefore we don't understand the world which is interesting because we are in a business you and i both are showing human stories on a screen which other people all over the world have to relate to and will relate to because that's what that's why they tune it in but at the same time, we divorce ourselves from their reality and go, what is their human, what is their, you know, we export all this stuff, but we don't import it. We don't go, what is their commonality? So it's an, it's an interesting thing, you know? And so uh, I think it all, it all sort of ties together. Yeah. It's a sort of weird existential way. Boy, are we getting deep. Well, oh, I, it's good to get deep. I, I actually, I actually want to, I want to dive into a relationship that you had that I wasn't around for when it began, but it's, it's certainly, you know, with one of, you know, certainly I would say one of my, one of my heroes in an aspect of cinematography, there was, there was, you know, of course, I guess it was, was it Garrett, Garrett Brown was your Steadicam mentor, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and so still there, to this day. So I in, mean, in, in his world, there were, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there was Larry McConkie, Ted Churchill, Garrett Brown, but Garrett Brown was sort of, he was the, he was the inventor uh, of the, the Steadicam, correct? Yeah, Garrett was the inventor of the Steadicam and um, rightfully, <laughs> excuse me, in the late 70s, um, got an academy for it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but more than that, Garrett, not only invented a new way to move a camera and define space for those who are cinematographers and camera operators and, and, and to define a way to tell a story and a way to, um, a way to visualize the world. But he also, by first a per force of personality, brought a collective people together that uh, were brilliant in their own right. You know, I mean, Larry McConkie is probably, you know, and, and his brother, Jim, now, but was one of the foremost and most brilliant steady cam operators around. Um, Ted Churchill as well. Uh, and so the, there was a cult of steady cam uh, yeah. because it was a cult of personality, if you will, yeah. uh, to, get, to get it on set. And I uh, stumbled onto that 
scenario and Garrett and I share the same love of sailing, music, um, and, and, and good jokes. Uh, so we became lifelong friends. Um, he, yes, absolutely was a mentor. Uh, absolutely took a young kid, I was 24, um, recognized that I had a will to do something and that I possibly didn't, I might have had the talent, um, but I don't know so much. I don't know so much where talent gets you, but I had the perseverance and the will. Well, let's, to, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about, uh, with the perseverance in the world, let's talk about going from operator to Steadicam. Because as far as I know, you, you, you didn't go to film school, right? So yeah. you're, you're someone who is not classically trained as a visual artist or photographer, although you must have done something before you first picked up a camera. So no, I, I know I, I was a musician. I mean, you know, I came from a musical background. Uh, so there was a sensibility of what artistry was in, in, in my household growing up. Uh, I, didn't, I did not attend university all the way through. I, I'm sad to say uh, that, I, that I neglected to finish three different universities. Um, neglected is the wrong word because that seems to I forgot. I willingly did not finish. Um, but I'm a voracious reader and I'm a curious human. And, and so... Uh, when filmmaking caught my eye, uh, which was through actually Larry McConkie, um, who was a next door neighbor at one point, uh, and, was, and was doing documentaries and doing musical films, and I was pulling cable and like assistant editing and whatnot, it was through him I met Garrett, and it was through Garrett uh, that we he designed and invented a thing called a Skycam, which is used in all the football games today. Uh, Garrett Brown invented it, and we were his colleagues in the design process. So I was one of the co-designers of the Skycam. Um, and having been always very curious, and as I said, a voracious reader, um, I'm very, I was self-taught in terms of what filmmaking was. So I, though I did not attend film school, um, I read every movie, I read every book I met, and I read every book about the movie, and I went to see films, and I went to the theater, and I, I wandered museums, and, and, and I educated myself um, in what my craft and art was. Um, so in the same way a musician might not be classically trained, um, there is a process that you can go through and open up the doors. And Garrett, for sure, was one of the people that opened up the doors big time. Because, um, you know, between Skycam and Steadicam, uh, I learned the technical skill of Steadicam and then uh, got pushed out the door by him to learn the um, artistic, if you will, the emotional part of the storytelling, the part that makes the real sense, you know. Not just frame on this moment for me because okay you know i'm i'm not clearly i never developed any career or life as in 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 photography although i began ironically as a photography student i studied photography and visual right. arts and i and I, I i first studied black and white still printed in a 
in a in a dark room, learned the zone system and the principles of 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 of, of what Ansel Adams had had created effectively, right? And then the middle gray and paper-based white and maximum black and and the scale and and then how exposure worked and how depth of field worked and all that. I, I learned photo principles and then from there I started to shoot. Uh, uh, Super 8 and did Super 8 films in college and then at the very end I actually shot and directed or directed I should say a thesis film that I made and then continued kind of working in production before I got into post but my love as I think every cinematographer knows that has known me over the years my love is cinematography even though I myself never made a career of being a cinematographer but I'm always fascinated by the foundation of what were, were the early moments of, of, of developing what you've developed because, because you learn in, in becoming a cinematographer, you learn the principles of, of RGB and YCM and color and points of color, points of, of density and darkness, right? And, 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 and contrast. And you learn all of the principles that are the tools and the language and uh, and those in your case were not from a, a background of having studied specifically shooting stills or shooting motion under the aegis of a, of a university or, or program. You did it actually on the job as an apprentice, and then and then becoming what you became. Correct. Yes. Um, although the introduction to the process was early. I mean, I remember getting this old two by two camera that uh, I have no idea how I got my hands on it or filmed for it, you know, and I guess I was 14 years old. Uh -huh. uh, and I literally stuck filming it and went off to shoot things because I was bored one summer. I mean, literally was bored and I was like, oh, let me try this stuff. Um, no idea that what f stops and t stops and exposures were and all that and the happy accident um was astounding when the film got developed um which allowed me to not to be afraid of the process the other thing that allowed me not to be afraid of learning about it is that all those salient points that you talk about in terms of exposures and f-stops and grayscales and densities and and color and what the spectrum is relates directly to music too. If, if you think about music as a language of sound, and you think about photography as a language of light, and then you think about cinematography as, as specifically as the moving of that language, then there are correlate, you know, there is correlation between what is time, what is, what is notes, what is frequency, um, what is atonal, what, you know, what is timber, in a, in, in a sound, et cetera, et cetera. And you can, you can draw the parallels uh, between them. And you can also draw the parallels because you can draw the parallels in painting as well. You know, when, you, when you're painting, it's just that the technique is different. And I do believe you also draw the parallels when you're writing because when you write, you, you also use now the spoken language uh, and you manipulate what the words that I'm using now by choice to use certain words to convey emotional reactions. And so words have, words have tone, words have meaning, words have timber, you know, when, you know, when something, there's a difference between being something sparkly 
and something being crispy, you know? I mean, there, there's, a, there's a tonality to it too. So I, I do think there's an interconnectedness to it. So I, I'm not surprised that, that, um, that I think, I mean, in other words, for me, I used what I had to, to, to be able to, to correlate somehow the, the, the unknown and go, oh, okay, I get that. I get, I get what rhythm is in camera movement. You know, I, I get what timber is in color. You know, I, I get, I get what that, what a minor chord is, you know, in, in, in darkness, you know, I, I get what a major chord is. I'm, I understand ending a phrase and brings you to an emotional point. I understand ending a shot that brings you to an emotional point. So uh, I think the two are very much interconnected and I, and I would be curious to see about most cinematographers who are, who are, who are not, who don't like music. I, I'd be curious to see if there are any. Well, I, I also I also feel it relates. I mean, just as a, a totally side point in in the in the world of what cinematography is and the conversations that I've had, I mean, specifically with guys like Stephen Goldblatt or, or certain cinematographers that talk about the physical sense of being a DP. Right. One of the thing one of, one of the conversations I got into, and this obviously fits for you. You're you're a physically fit person, which is I think part of what needs to be for a cinematographer because a cinematographer also is 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 also in a sense uh, uh has aspects of of dance of movement physical movement of being you know of of understanding and capturing and being physical in the moment with the people that you're you're shooting you're 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 part of the choreography too i mean so there's a little piece of that there are many pieces of 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 being uh uh in the moment the the musical comparison is fantastic I, and 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 it and it and it is uh it it deals with 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 a many so many aspects of 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 what the creative process is but then there's then there's actually physically your physical presence especially actually now that i think about it as a as a, a an operator, camera operator, and steady cam operator, I mean that foundation uh, is is that of being in. You're in the scene. You're in the moment. Absolutely, and it's, uh, it's something I still haven't given it up. I mean, obviously, I don't always operate my own camera um, for all sorts of reasons. The movie's too big, too many things going on. I have operators who are brilliant. Uh, to some degree, it's uh, you know. Okay, so on a small film, it'd be like a quintet or quartet where you're first violin, you're the cinematographer, you're the first violin, and, you know, you're setting the tone of everything because you're, you, you got the chair. On a bigger film, you're more of a conductor because, you know, you're just too damn busy to play first violin, you know? And anyway, maybe there's a better first violinist over there, you know, because well, their chops are really good, you it's know? A, it's, a, it's an orchestra multi-camera it's an orchestra and you're absolutely. the conductor exactly absolutely and i think that's what drew me to the steady cam and what drew me to camera movement and then what drew me to the ultimately is to the storytelling of it all uh because ultimately what we do is tell human stories whether they're horror films romantic comedies dramas whether they're like music videos whatever they are ultimately what we're looking to do as visual storytellers um, is to convey that human emotion to convey the commonality of an experience 
that this experience is is real and it's common throughout the world. That that because of because we are human, it is common. Um, and uh, there's a a director does the same thing, but with multiple disciplines. The director has to take the page using all the disciplines, music, editing, cinematography, costume, etc. <clears throat> tell that story. I think we as cinematographers take the square. And, you know, the first question I always ask the director when a scene's coming up is like, uh, what do you think, what music are you thinking? You know? Like, you must be thinking of music. And if they don't have an answer, then I, the whole bunch of bells go off in my head. Like, okay, so what were you doing when you were reading the script, you know? What do you mean we don't know what tonality we're bringing to this? Uh, I recently watched a film that I had done two years ago in Staten Island, a beautiful little piece uh, directed by um, James DeMonaco and written by him. Um, it's now called The First Night. It's the... It's about the story of, um, anyway, never mind the story. Um, the point is I last saw it, because it's been in and out of post and whatever, I last saw it with a different score back in, in May. I just saw it last night on my computer with a whole new scoring to it and a whole, and, and, and it's just astounding little bit of filmmaking because the choice that they went with finally on the soundtrack was the right one. You know, and and it was, and so when you ask the director, what are you thinking of? Even if they've got the wrong answer, they should have an answer. So, they, yeah, so I think that I'm not sure what part of the subject I'm going off on here, but um, it is to do with music and camera movement and the physicality of defining space, you know. Um, and and we, we work in a 2D world. You know, I mean, uh, I did I did one 3D movie. It was very unsuccessful for me. Uh, it was a successful film, but it was very unsuccessful for me uh, because, interesting enough, I felt more hampered than I did uh, when I was able to explore the, the medium. Um, and I think that in the 2D world, you know, camera movement is what describes a 3D space, which is what we live in. And the fourth dimension is time. You know, that's the difference between a still photograph and, and cinematography and, and a motion picture is that we are constantly moving forward through space. You know, our, the images that you and I create, Charlie, move forward in space. They're, they're not the, the decisive moment. You know, exactly. the decisive moment is always coming up. Exactly. Exactly. Now I'd like to wind the clock. It's different, back. not 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 better or worse. Just I'm saying it's different. I want to wind the clock back a little bit because you know your Steadicam work introduced you to some spectacular moments. And and and, and oh my god, yeah, I, I worked with born, some of the coolest born, people. Born on the Fourth of July. All yeah, of yeah, yeah. There's stories on that one. Jorge um, Schroeder, reversal of fortune. <laughs> yeah, this goes on. You work with a lot of amazing directors as a Steadicam operator before I met you, working with Revolution Studios and 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 doing movies with, with that group. In oh, the yeah, I was there early 2000s. I mean, in a sense, it seems like there's sort of a, 
a cutoff. It's, I can't tell what exact year, maybe 97, 96. You're, you, you jump from being a Steadicam operator to, to full-on director of photography, and then, then the rest is history from then on, right? I mean, you know, you're doing – one of the early films was with Milos Forman, which was Man on the Moon, right? What happens is, and you're talking about mentorship, the, the Garrett kind of kicked me out the door and put me into the feature world. Yeah. Uh, and then um, through perseverance and just wanting to be better at my craft, um, I became a very sought after Steadicam and A camera operator. Right. Um, and, 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 and again, it's to Garrett's credit. I, I, he got a call, I got a call from Haskell. Wexler and it was like Garrett recommended you to do a camera on a movie and it was with you know Gregory Peck for God's sakes um oh sirens going by so I'll have to yeah no part of, part, part of our part of our zoom lifestyle sure wait it's right down fifth it's yeah, fading the yeah. Chris, Newman. Chris Newman would never accept it yet yeah 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 we won't have to do ADR on this bro Oh, there it goes. So, um, <laughs> but, so, but yeah, so, so Garrett recommends that. me. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, Garrett recommends me to Haskell. And, uh, you know, I'd done some, a lot of B camera stuff before, but never an A camera job. Um, well, actually, I'd done one A camera job, but that, that, that has, uh, that, that did not end well, not for me. It ended really well for me, but there's a different story, not for a podcast. Anyway, so, um, and, and working with Haskell was just so astounding uh, as another mentor because um, his, he was in the 70s by then, his thirst for bettering himself and his thirst for the craft was, was still so very much alive. Um, he and Norman, Norman Joseph was directing, would get into all sorts of like arguments and, and fights because, you know, Norm would say, oh, we're going to do a close-up, you know, of, you know, of Danny DeVito was an of Danny, right? And he goes, yeah, 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 close-up. And so, so Norm would go back to his trailer, and the next thing you know, we're starting the close-up by a steady cam shot that starts up outside. You know, and yeah, it ends up in a close-up, but, um, you know, Haskell was always trying to draw the picture out visually, you know? Uh, and I do remember him sitting next to him in dailies, which is one of those things that I don't know what young cinematographers do these days because as a camera operator and you were part of dailies, there were never assigned shoots, but invariably the cinematographer, the director and the editor sat in front in the middle. And I usually sat right behind as a B camera operator or right next to as an A camera operator, the cinematographer, right? privy to all the conversations about the day's work that we had done yesterday. The production designer was also a row ahead of us or a row behind us. The costume designer was also there. The props were there. Everybody was in a collective room examining the, the work, and I use the work in capital letter, letters, um, in, in, a, in a critique of what we could do better, you know? Uh, and that process sitting next to, and some of the most amazing cinematographers of the day, Sven Nyquist, um, Haskell, John Seal. I mean, I, I worked with a bunch of guys. Look, Bruce, uh, 
Philippe Rousselot as his A camera operator for seven movies. Um, the process is always a learning one and you learn what the collective craft is, you know? Um, and you learn what cinematography is and what a cinematographer does. And you learn what an editor needs and an editor does. And you learn why does the costume designer so upset because I can see, oh my God, and a close, I remember on, um, interview with a vampire the costume designer was beside themselves because i had a close-up and they could see machine stitching on a on a, on a collar on an extra <coughs> and it was you know it just you know took them right out because it was like a period piece why would there be machine stitching i mean that kind of attention to to the detail of their own craft um with with production designers i mean you know some of the greatest um you, you, you absorb that like a sponge. So in that process of doing that, interesting enough, um, I was working with Philippe Rousselot and um, I was down in Florida on a movie that uh, Tony Hopkins was in, in Cuba Gooding, and we were coming out of dailies and it was like Friday night. So it was like, hey, where do you wanna go for dinner? And we were walking towards the car and he goes, I don't know, I don't know where you wanna be, but then his French accent, I don't know where I want to go. I don't know, maybe we should go here. And I think even David Dotson was coming in from Panavision to visit us that weekend or something. And I said, oh, I heard Miloshi was doing, is doing another movie because Philippe and I had collaborated on Larry Flint together with Miloš. And uh, are you doing it? And he said, no, no, he asked me to, but um, I have to go back to France. You know, I have some things to do. And I literally was getting into my car and I shot him a look across the roof of the car. I never will forget this. And said to him, well, tell him I'll shoot it. And Philippe snapped his head around and just gave me this stare and just got into his car. Cut to six weeks later, I'm on top of a crane in that same show. We're making rain. I'm being yelled at by Philippe <laughs> and, the, and the AD, I'm trying to remember who it was, because the, the Menardi shade is like dripping great huge globs of water down into the front of the lens. And, you know, I'm up there in the rain fiddling with like towels with the assistant trying to make it not do that so we could roll camera. And my cell phone rings, which was not a good thing because, um, you know, it was early cell phone days and they should not be on set. And it was Michael Hausman calling me to see where I was. And I was like, oh, I'm going to call you later. And interesting enough, I get a call from Michael. I call him back. When are you going to be in New York? I'll be in New York for four weeks. Okay. Uh, Milish, love to see you. I said, oh, cool. I'd love to see Milish. So up I went. I go to Milish's Park Avenue apartment. I sit down. I had to read the script called Man on the Moon. And um, I'm thinking, wow, he's going to hire his, his camera operator. How cool is that? You know, like, you know, I used to get hired by all sorts of directors as an operator. You know, uh, I have a David Fincher story to tell you. Um, and um, I said, oh, so I didn't ask him who was shooting. I said, so what aspect ratio do you want to shoot this in? And he goes, I don't know. You tell me you're the cameraman. And I went, oh, wait a minute. He said cameraman. He didn't say camera operator. And I said, who's shooting this? And he said, you, you are the DP. Yeah. And that's how I got that job. Um, and what it means is though, it means a bunch of stuff, you know, it means a bunch of stuff in the, in the collective, like long-term view of life, which is one, 
uh, be ready for it, you know, be ready for it. And, and the two is recognize your mentors and, and do the same for when you have a chance to do so. Because Philippe gave up a hotshot operator, you know, uh, so that he knew, he knew once I did a Milos Foreman film, I wasn't going back to operating with him, you know, but he, but that is the relationship that this business has. And I think it's a defining one for the business and it's a defining one that what draws me to it time and time and time again, and why I work with certain crews and, and the people that I've mentored and the people that have mentored me and whatnot and moved on. Um, so, uh, yes, you're talking about how that break just happened. It does just happen. You know, it does happen that the hand of fate comes down and, and plucks you. Um, but only after being prepared for it. And I think that for you see new cinematographers and I do as well. And I think that it's interesting that when you go back to say, oh yes, you worked your way in the apprentice build world is that you and I grew up on film. Yes. Film was in your head. Very important. The image is in your head. Very important part of our lives uh, was, was exactly the way you described the first moment you, you, you had what you referred to as happy accidents. Well, you know, as you learn and become the cinematographer that you became and have become, uh, uh, the craft is, is uh, 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 understanding every last element of, uh, of, of what you're going to get by what you do before and testing, shooting, prepping, and then ultimately uh, uh, realizing your results, but also creating the magic. Because the magic with film was, as you described dailies, film the magic was it's the next day. No one gets to look at what you did today. They look at it on a, on a playback monitor in black and white uh, that's off of a video tap but the real work comes in in dailies and dailies, as you just described, they don't really exist anymore. No, it doesn't. And I think that's to the detriment of the craft. I really do to the detriment of filmmaking. Um, there are directors that I work with <coughs> that insist on dailies still. Um, and I don't know how you, I personally watch dailies. I, I watch them myself. I watch my own work. Uh, because I don't know how to go on to the next day. Part of it is uh, on two levels. One of them is when, for example, when you're operating, you not only have the craft of operating and the craft of like telling the story within that frame, moving the camera in a certain way to be able to tell that story, but you also have the responsibility, uh, or particularly in film, uh, of flagging the issues that would have, would have arose. Uh, misfocused, um, boom and shot, nick the lamp, uh, a bump over here on the thing, whatever. What that trains you though, when you when you used to do it that way, is it trains you not only to be in the moment, but to record the moment. You really have to, to be two brains working at once. One of them is the, the left side where it's like, okay, uh, um, this is what just has to happen to tell the story. The other one is just ticking off, you know, that was a bump. There was a misfocus. Okay, that we nipped the flag. Oh, the boom came in. Now, obviously, all this doesn't happen in one shot, or maybe it happens in rehearsal. 
<clears throat> but what it does is that um, it, as an operator, you go, went to dailies and you validated that part of your memory. When you're a painter or a musician and you write music, you listen to what you write the next day. And the next day you go back and go, huh, I wonder when I laid down that track, what did that sound like? Everybody's sitting around, the band's sitting around, go, huh, that's what the track sounded like. When you're a painter, you don't just start painting on the, on the hand again the next day because you left off on the hand. You started looking at the painting as a whole, as a fresh, and you spend the time to, to devote yourself to what is the outcome? What, where am I going with this? As a writer, yet, you know, even Balzac, who wrote copious amounts of like amazingly prolific writer, um, he would write longhand and instantly send that off to the printer. And the next day he would have these galleys, which he would then read what he wrote longhand and then write in the margins and then send that off to the, to the printer as well to, 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 to continue his process. You know, so he didn't like to edit his own scrawl he had a printer printed out for him. But the first thing in the morning was to read what he did yesterday before he went on. And the, the lack of dailies to, to me still astounds me that, that we're, we're in that uh, era. You know, it, it really does. Um, which is why, you know, Chris Nolan has dailies. <laughs> That's why his films are what his films are. Uh, and everybody gets to go. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how young cinematographers do it because I was trained to visualize the scene before the scene was in front of me. Because I, when I read the script, I had to have an image in my head. And it wasn't right. on a monitor, you know? It was like when I walked into a stage, it was like, oh, this is the image that I already have, not let me set up a monitor and turn on a light. You know, so that's why I think even the old school guys, uh, I don't like with a monitor. I mean, I just get in there and go, you know, I think it's a 27 over here. And some, you know, my operator go, I'm at 24. And I go, mm, yeah, you're probably right. You know, whatever. You're the operator. Yeah, 24. You know, it's, it's rarely a, a big clash between what those two things are. Um, and then it's starting to light. Just you light my eye and you do it, you know, because that's the image that you had, not the image you're creating on a monitor by living in a tent and going, Oh, that one should come down a half a stop, or that one should go up and make that more blue. Well, you have to map out the entire frame and the, the set and the scenario, and 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 find where the points are that you're that you're that you're 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 what you're exposing and where in the frame where the detail is. So yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting process, anyway. I mean, you know, <laughs> not to sound like an old timer, but I am, um, and part of the the part that I'm proud of being an old timer is that I got to work in a medium with, and with you try, you know, on, on, uh, you know, uh, on Mona Lisa smile. That was a film show with film dailies, yeah. you know, and then it was a whole discussion whether or not we were going to go DI on that, you That's know, right. and I was like, mm, I don't know if I want to go DI mm, back and forth, back and forth. And ultimately we did. Um, death to Smoochie was with the universal. And I do remember them pitching the DI to me, um, when I was out in LA and I had a side-by-side -side test of something that was colorized um, through a DI and something that was not. And Danny and I voted to go with photochemical on that one. Um, 
just because it was, we liked it. It was more organic. It was, you know, and also the DI obviously at that point was, you know, high death and it was in a whole other. Right, the, 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 tool, the tools advanced. We watched digital intermediates grow from early scanning days to what it is today in, in high resolution digital capture. And, and in advance of that, uh, 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 scanning done and, and color correction done in real time uh, uh, with high resolution files in the early days everything kind of choked in the process and oh, yeah. it, was, it was crazy i remember like you know transition was hard and i remember, <laughs> I remember being in all sorts of facilities your facility where like all of a sudden we would our screen would stop because somebody next door was like rendering <laughs> you know i mean all the stuff yeah. that went with it no, no, part no, of the process is yeah the technology changed but one of the things that i talked about ironically it was in a in a in a discussion with a with one of your your ASC colleagues on another mm -hmm. podcast with Matty Libatique, we talked about right. Ed Lockman. And, and, you know, there are those who are what I would call religious lovers of film. He's one of them. Um, and, and as am I for, for certain. But, but one of the things that, that's always remarkable to me is when you have a result in of, the, of something that you've done that people like, like are shocked by when they hear it was finished in a certain way, right? In other words, like when Ed Lockman shot Far From Heaven for Todd Haynes and, and, and someone said, oh, that, that was incredible post to finish that. And I said, well, actually, no, uh, he did a film answer print. That was all in the negative. And right. He did. he did. And I'm like, what? They said? And they said, what? And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, because, and, and it was one of the things that I always loved when I, and I think it was with conversations with you, there are only a certain amount of cinematographers who I would have this dialogue with, who, who confidently felt that what they did, the, the old expression uh, uh, coined to me mostly by, by, by um, Tak Fujimoto, was he would say to me, Charlie, what we did, John Adams, he said, it's in the negative, uh, I, 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 go deal with it. It's in the negative, whatever you want to do. It's in the negative. And, and, and he was right because we were going through at that point, a hybrid process for, for, with HBO that was uh, a, a, an, an HD transfer process that was in question as to whether or not they were going to do sort of uh, a file correction or whether they were going to go back to the negative and do a DI, even for the broadcast show. And he was like, well, you can do whatever you want because it's in the negative. So I'm done after, after this. And, 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 and don't get me wrong. He was common during the creative process. Well, absolutely. No, no, no. I, 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 don't, but, I don't misunderstand but, that quote but, at all. But I, but I love the idea. And then one of the things that I loved was it, in the relationship that happens between a cinematographer and a colorist is, don't get me wrong, uh, 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 there are colorists that do great magic. And I worked with quite a few of them in my career. Um, but the, the reality is, uh, 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 for lack of a better word, a confident cinematographer will, will, enable and will enable a colorist to find what they were intending. And, and not only find what they were intending, but also to get to what they were intending um, because they were methodical about what they did throughout the process. If you came from a photochemical background, where where you had to hit dynamic ranges and you had to hit photo principles where if something 
for arguments that had to be printed and couldn't be windowed and and fixed you had you had to have something that could be answer printed i mean i know personally of projects where if there had not been a di the film would not look the way it looks and and of course there are oh, yeah. where you go beyond and the di becomes a creative tool because you can do anything you want to any part of the frame in a di whereas with film you had the opportunity to you had, you were you were limited with the opportunity of of lighting exposure color contrast and it had to and it had to hit in a range where when it went through timing it had to get there di lets would 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 make the possibility of getting somewhere possible even with something that might not have been able to be answer printed and get to the same destination so it became absolutely. cool absolutely so the process changed but yeah and, it, and it's sort of interesting because you know i i want to use music as an analogy for a quick second and um actually pop music um it doesn't even have to be operatic although there's a uh, you know lauren flanagan and the opera singer but just think about think about whitney houston and autotune you know i mean the reality is is that autotune yeah will make your voice sound like it's perfectly in tune and you can choose your pitches and you can choose exactly where it is but the uh, emotional intent behind the cinematographer, which is what we ultimately are. We ultimately light a film and we frame a film because it has emotional intent behind it. Not because blue happens to look better than cyan, you know? Um, that part there, we may, if, you, if you are true to your craft, remains obviously obvious even in today in the di many di guys i work with you know and um the joe gallers and the tim stiffens of the world etc uh i go how does it look and they go easy squeezy toss because why because the emotional intent is there i'm not i'm I, they, they, they took a look at the past and they went i know exactly where you're going yeah, that's, <laughs> it. Know, that's it I know exactly what the tone ranges are. I, you know, there might be slight variations. And obviously in today's world, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I don't have to ND that window anymore with an N12 because, you know, I can whack it through and I can bring it back later. But I knew that in the past I would have an N12 ND on that window, you know? I mean, I did a show here in New York, and I, I might have been technical, uh, that, um, we had a, mm, I want to say it was 200 feet of windows on top of the World Trade Center uh, with a Halle Berry movie all the way across. Perfect and Strangers. Was, Perfect Strangers. Yes, that was it. Revolution. And, uh, I was there. I remember. And I'm changing those NDs out like 369, 369, 369, and time trade was a key grip. And we go, okay, go. And we got it down to like seven minutes to change all the NDs out, you know? um because it would be cloudy not cloudy cloudy not cloudy and you know and the windowing was far less sophisticated in that world uh as in the di world at that time you know I mean, early, day, early days sure it was early day and try and pull somebody's hair out of that and keep the background going and you know and, and everything else that went with it so um yeah the technology is 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 um it all depends on how you use it not everything else that goes with it you know i suppose uh, not I suppose, but it's true. 
but but my my big lament is not the DEI and not digital cinematography. My big lament is the lack of dailies. You know, uh, that to me is like the the process where I I go, oh my god, I, you know, I I don't know how to. I don't know how to mentor assistants anymore because um, they're off in their own little world, doing their own little thing on a monitor somewhere separate. And then at lunchtime, they kind of ask you sometimes about a shot. And I think, man, if you could only see this on a big screen and we could talk about it right afterwards, or you could ask me and then tomorrow you can go look and see what, like, what I was doing and the why of it, you know? Um, because I have to say every mentor, every DP I ever worked with as an operator, uh, was um, was free with the information when I asked for it, and and it wasn't often because there was a there's a fine line between I'm here to do my job, and uh, I'm not here to treat you as a as a teacher. But when when necessary and when needed, it was like oh I get oh that's um, hmm, I have no idea why he just did that why why would why did they do that okay let me go ask why did they why did you do that you know. So, um, yeah, dailies, big thing. But yeah, yeah so that, I mean, it's a, it's a dailies are a conversation. Um, I've worked with, with Caleb Deschanel, uh, uh, Darius Kanji insisted on dailies, all of these yourself, of course. But I mean, cinematographers that, that grew up in a world where I remember sitting with Caleb and Wayne Warman uh, uh, on the beginning of a feature and they were the only two guys in the theater during tests and, and early on talking about what they were about to do. And, and there was no real plan at the time for them even to be sitting, even at that moment, and this is in the 2000s, to be sitting with the director. Um, I'm not gonna say which film it is, it doesn't matter. But, but it's, it's important, the story's important because their careers involved a conversation. There was an editor, a DP, hopefully a director in the room, and then right. as you described other departments. I've been in those screenings when I when I worked when I was when I was involved with with uh, all of the films that I dealt with when I was at Technicolor, like The Departed, when Michael Balhaus shot that for for Martin Scorsese, and 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 when we we did all of these projects where people gathered in the theater and there were conversations about what, what, what we were going to do in the test phase, but then also there were, there were uh, 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 the screenings that would come through and then there were the cinematographers like our, our mutual friend, uh, 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 Mr. Doyle, uh, uh, Chris Doyle. Yeah, uh, of course. In, in, insistent on, on regardless of whether or not there was someone who would come in to join him he was going to get in there and, and watch dailies, even if it was on the weekend when he wasn't shooting or it was early in the morning before he would go to set. This, these, it was, but, but in the traditional sense, in the, in the, in the era when, you know, I worked with, I don't know, with like, you know, with Penny, Mar Penny Marshall working with Miroslav Andrzejczyk, uh, they were in the theater at, at multiple nights per week watching together. It was a team. It was, it was people talking to each other about what happened yesterday. Yeah, I think that's what, basically what it is. And I think that, you know, the whole process has changed. The thrust of films have changed. You know, the um, amount of money and time and effort and all that gets pared down to the point where 
somebody gives up something and somebody else wants to get some more sleep or whatever goes on, uh, which is a, which is a crime because I mean, I think the, the great work comes from the collaboration. I think that's why we all got, that's why I got into the business. And how you view what the last time I worked <laughs> with, 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 with Darius was on a Woody Allen film called Irrational Man with Joaquin Phoenix. And he insisted as he always did on setting up, uh, a, a very special monitor system, monitor setup in his home at location in Rhode Island because he was going to look at dailies regardless of who else was going to look at it. But it was also the way you look at dailies. He wasn't going to look at an H.264 desktop file on PICS or DAX, which most of us have had to do, right? Uh, because right. we review all of the, 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 the lesser quality quick times mostly for performance and for knowing what we got in the performance, but not for the visual impact of what took place. So he insisted on getting another file, a ProRes 444 file, delivered to him uh, uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a drive in his case, or I think in the end, ultimately on a higher level desktop delivery to uh, a monitor in his home in, uh, uh, where they were shooting in Rhode Island. He was in Newport. And so, he was looking at what he wanted to see to be able to judge his stuff. The producers and, and then, you know, Woody and, and everybody were getting dailies. They were getting Dax and Picks, or I guess it was, it was probably Picks at the time. doesn't really matter. It was a desktop daily system. And, and people can review the, the basic look of the image, and they can certainly see performance, and they can put it on a decent-sized monitor. But it's not the same as sitting together and having a, a conversation and it's also everyone's not in some cases not everyone's looking at the same thing which is also another issue when people so, so true text, right they're looking true. at a, a file that's that's not superior to what a better dailies file would be that the cinematographer might insist on i can't tell you how many times i told the director tilt your tilt your monitor back tilt what? your laptop back your laptop, you know, I mean, like the contrast changes. So what angle are you looking at that out? You think the black's milky? Tilt it back a little bit. There, voila. I had to do it with Darius because I said to Darius, I said, listen, I know we're giving you this better file. I said, but you better look at everything, even though I know it's, you're going to have to look at things twice. You better look at everything that everybody else is looking at. Because even though sure. you're looking at the better file, uh, uh, they're all getting the, the desktop dailies file for performance. If they have any questions, be ready to answer. I it used to be that, but the thing that I, there was the technical aspect of it, but in the films I've done recently, um, without having dailies, the editor and the cinematographer's positions at times have become adversarial rather than collaborative. Talk about that. When we had dailies and there was a work print, that was the print they were cutting off of. The image looked like that. And if it was meant to be dark, it looked dark. If it was too dark in the dailies, and then we would say reprint that. But if it was like, mm, that's the way we like it, that's what it was. The constant daily interaction with an editor so often on Mona Lisa Smile, for example, and, and uh, Mike Newell knows his stuff, 
and I had worked with Mick Osley as an operator before. He can't, we would come up to me and goes, you know, you think we, you know, I'm thinking about maybe there should be a close up on the thing, you know, as we were walking out of the hall. And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, see if we can't grab that somewhere. I'll, I'll talk to the, you know, um, Joe Reedy or our first JD. I'll talk to Joe, maybe we can pick it up somewhere. There was a collaboration as to what images we were putting on the screen. Today, an editor is in LA somewhere. Or they're just wherever. Yeah. Or wherever, wherever, you know. Uh, they're getting images fed into whatever system they're using. Usually yeah. at, at whatever levels they like to put their monitors at. Mm -hmm. And then you and I have experienced this often when we go to the DI and all of a sudden the editor is going to go, well, well that's too dark. No, it's not too dark. That's the that's the darkness that I that, that no, that's the darkness. That is the darkness. <laughs> you know? Well, no, 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 because I was looking at it be, and I was like, no, I don't know where you had your monitor set. But when we were filming this piece, this was the agreed upon directorial cinematographer level of how we wanted this to feel. And no, we did not want it any more blue. And no, I you know, I don't did not want it pushed in and no i don't think that the close-up works like this because i think that the close-up is wrong for it and so there becomes an adversarial position to this you know and it's interesting enough i have said to editors okay you can tell me what color you like i'll tell you what frames to cut off or to add in yeah. right I mean, it's it, 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 it absolutely i, I am i'm a collaborator <laughs> I will listen to that, and then, and but in that collaboration is that cut is two frames too tight. Yeah, you know you, you need to let it breathe a bit, or the joke won't work. You know, or you, why did you, why do you have that tail end on there? You should cut it off because we should go smashing into this other thing. So we're all filmmakers, and in the process of um, losing dailies, we've lost a the trust that you had between those three people in the front row in the middle row. The intent was always spoken out loud. Tomorrow, yeah, we'll make that scene darker. We'll make it bluer. The midnights, oh, oh shit, next week we have this scene coming up. What are we thinking? I'm thinking this, this way. Are you thinking quick cuts? No, we're thinking this. That conversation does not occur. And that, to me, is a great loss for what our art form is. And it's, that's why this, you know, uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I think what people, whoever might be listening to this uh, should recognize that there is a, there's something that we lose. We gain time, but time is like, you know, when it's all said and done, you know. It, three years from now, when you watch your film, nobody ever thinks like, oh my God, that took an hour of dailies every day. <laughs> Well, you had, we, we've both had, I think, close to three careers plus within our careers, starting early days with, yeah. with, with film, then the transition to digital, and then now uh, uh, all of the stuff that, that we, we work on is a grand variety of work. You have a, uh, a, a, also a piece that I wasn't aware of going back to the Skycam being a, a part of the invention. Every Sunday, brother. Yeah. That, yeah, for, for 20 years, every year I used to get a, Solid bottle of wine of royalties. <laughs> Skycam. Yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. Let's, and it was a fine wine indeed. Let's talk about let's talk about uh, uh, collaborations here a little bit. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Danny DeVito, uh, uh, several features. 
I think, what is it, like five short films that I noticed you? I, I didn't even know that Million you short films. I don't even know why they get put on IMDb or anything. Danny, Danny and I will do a short film and, and it, whenever he's got a spare nickel to throw it and find a camera, I can't tell you, yes. Talk uh, about Mr. DeVito, I love him. And uh, uh, the first time I met him was not with you, it was actually on the film with Richard Lagravenais called Living Out Loud. Yes, yes, and he was marvelous in that film. Marvelous. He's a great. He's a great actor. And he is. Uh, he is, really he is your friend, your collaborator. You've done mm -hmm. so much with him. Let's talk a little bit about our friend, Mr. Devito, and about about going back in time and how you started working with him because you worked with him on on Death to Smoochie. You worked with him on on two feature films sequentially, right? I met Danny on Other People's Money. On other people's money okay which was i was operating and that was norman juice directing that was on the haskell shot and then we literally was a operator actor relationship and that was about it um but then <clears throat> then when i got hired to do man on the moon by milos i had to get past danny's blessings right and I was flown out to LA, I go to Jersey Films, uh, I wander into Danny's office. You know, I'm a nervous young cameraman at this point, thinking, oh my God, if I fuck this up, I'll, that's right, I'll just go back to operating, because you know, it's not a job yet. And that was a really difficult film to, I mean, for all sorts of reasons later. But at this point, there's Danny lying on a couch, and he goes, hey man, we work together. And I go, yeah, we did. Yeah, we did other people's money together. And he goes, yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. So we, we, we talked about Haskell for a minute. And then he said, well, how do you see this film? You know? Um, and I said, well, it's a, even though it's a comedy, it, it's a period piece. And I think it should be played as a period piece. And, you know, Milos has a strong hand on the drama of the characters. Um, and I'm just going to shoot it as a period 1970s looking drama i want it to look of the period i don't want it to look like a 1995 1997 i think i shot that in 90, 95 96 yes 95 six somewhere in there um film i wanted to give it the trope of you know of here we are in the 70s and 80s uh, and it, it went from lighting to costume to camera to everything um and he goes well it's a pretty big movie and i go okay this is true but here's who i'm hiring I'm hiring Mitch Dubin. And he knew who Mitch Dubin was, because Mitch Dubin was like by that point a super A-list operator, you know, and I had worked with Mitch as an operator, but Mitch was a buddy and I, I knew he would cover me. I said, I'm I'm hiring Chris Centrella as key grip, you know. I mean, you cannot get more creme de la creme even back then than Chris, who had done every Oliver Stone picture in the world and was Bob's like go-to guy, you know. I'm hiring Jack English as a gaffer. You know, um, he had, Jack had done everything from Ridley Scott's movies to, to, to Philippe Rousselot movies to big, huge movies, little movies, you know, and I said, and, and on Focus, I'm going to get Pat McArdle, who was, you know, again, even back then, creme de la creme top guy. And I said, so I'm putting myself in a position that I have people supporting me, you know, so that I'm not going to let Milos down. And he gave me this look, and um, he said, okay, that's it, you're in. So 
off we go to do this film. And the film was started at 62 days and ended up being 89 because of Jim Carrey's, um, you've seen the documentary, uh, I'm sure, Jim and Jim, uh, Jim his, uh, his immersion into the role. And I have stories galore about that, that, that particular part of it. But to get back to Danny, we finished that film. I come back to LA, uh, to New York. There's a tiny little movie that they won't need a DP on. Uh, literally a 13 day shoot. And it's like my second movie. My first movie is Man on the Moon. The second movie is a 13 day shoot uh, called The Big Kahuna with Kevin Spacey. Yeah, uh, I remember and, it. And uh, Bob Newhart. And I was like, cool, I'm, I'm in. I'd love to shoot it 13 days. And uh, I, I got, I mean, now I can't go back to operating. I got to keep on working as a DP. Sure, whatever, whatever. The Thursday, we're supposed to start on a Monday. The Thursday before the Monday, again, it's only 13 days, Dan, uh, Bob Newhart drops out. Saturday morning, the film's off on Friday. Saturday morning, the film is back on again because Danny DeVito comes in. We start on a Monday. And it, and it was like, oh, hey, I, hey, hey. And that film was such a small, tiny film that Kevin was doing Broadway in the evening, right? While in New York, hey, yeah, whatever it was, eight shows a week, right? I guess, or nine or eight, whatever it is. Um, and so well, the way we would work was in the morning, we'd work with Danny. In the afternoon, we would work just Danny's side of stuff. In the afternoon, we would shoot Danny and Kevin together doing their scenes, because it's mostly a three-in-hand, two-in-hand show, Kevin and Danny. Uh, and then Kevin would have to go off to work. In the morning, Kevin was sleeping, so Kevin would have to go off to work. And then we would shoot the Danny side. So in the morning, we had Kevin and the thing, and then we would do Danny in the afternoon. So that required a whole, and also a first-time film director. So that required a whole lot of machinations in terms of, okay, what are we doing tomorrow? Here's the C-stand, where are you gonna be? I'm not gonna X on the ground. And I had just come off from Man on the Moon where this was de rigueur because of Jim Carrey's antics um, process and antics. Um, so I just come through that. And so that's where Danny and I got really tight. It got tight in that tiny little movie where it was like, where, you know, where and how to, to construct a film together when we did not have two actors in the same time, except for two hours a day over a 13 day shoot. <laughs> and then he asked great me to go on and shoot some other things. Yeah, great result though. I saw Bagoon, I remember that, beautiful. Love hey, it was, a, it was an interesting, tiny little movie, uh, absolutely. Um, and uh, fond memories because Danny um, is quite the connoisseur of good food. And he had found this spot it was May, I'm pretty sure it was May, that would make a um, truffled buffalo mozzarella every day fresh, and we would get it in for lunch. And he was okay in my book after that. <laughs> Fantastic. A man who enjoys life. Absolutely, absolutely. But he's also such a consummate filmmaker. So these little tiny films that he would do in his house, I remember we were doing little tiny things, little projects just because he liked it and likes to work. Um, I mean, he, had a, he had a beautiful mansion, Beverly Hills, huge library, three swimming pools type deal. Um, and it's late one night. Kristen Cello is helping Key Grip. We're doing this all for free. 
You know, we just show up because it's Danny. You know, beg, borrow, steal the gear, and show up because it's Danny. So we're doing this little tiny short. And he wants to put, put it in his library, and it's got this gorgeous cherry paneling. I mean, just beautiful cherry paneling. And I need to hang a little Chinese lantern up there because at that point, it was no LED world. It was all Chinese lanterns. And uh, I said, oh, God, I'm Chinese. I'm going to thing on a ladder. And, you know, I'm up there uh, with some tape. And that's Chris is up there with tape, right? And uh, it falls down. And Chris goes up there and tapes it up again. And it falls down. Dan just nailed the fucking thing in. Chris goes, I can't nail this in there. He goes, oh, of course you can. It's always it's on the top. Nobody will ever know. Nobody will ever see it up there. It'll be fine. Okay, so Chris gets a little tiny brad and a hammer and just tie a little piece of string so he can nail this little light up there. And uh, he's going tap, tap, tap. And as he's tapping, who walks by the library door but Rhea, per Rhea Perlman, his wife. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all freeze like like little elves in a shop. <laughs> like you don't see us here. Rhea shoots Danny a look, and Danny goes, "I'm gonna hear about that later." And she just lets the store <laughs> open. <laughs> so he is that kind of filmmaker, you know. Um, and he's always been incredibly inventive and incredibly generous. Yeah, and 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 uh, just a, a, an ongoing fabulous. Uh, a relationship even up through a film that i i don't i'm, I'm unclear about it Sa san sebastian yes that was again a hey danny i got a script kind of film is what he calls he he said i got a script to us let's go make a movie and he, and it was like no money literally nobody got paid for like the 11 days it took us to make us you know but we were we enjoyed making it um and, but one of the, then Danny set to cut himself and he cut the whole thing himself. The, the issue was that uh, because we had absolutely no money, um, he, he cut a very tight little movie of only, um, I think, 68 minutes. So it was hard to be a feature film and hard to be an hour special. Um, so I don't even know what's happening, whatever happened to that or anything. But again, um, it's like, for the love of it. I, I liken it to a band where somebody calls up and says, hey, let's go cut a record. And you just show up and you do it, you know, because why? Because that's what you like doing, you know, and you show up and you play your instrument and everybody tries to do the best they possibly can. And then record might get released, might not get released. Uh, it might sit on the shelf and who knows, it might get released next year. Um, dust, you know, it might be dusted off. So those those there's that part of Danny's um, creativity that that draws many people to him, you know, because we we do that. Wonderful. A uh, little bit about when I met you. Not not that we shouldn't talk about it, but I think we should because there was a whole series of films for Revolution Studios. Yes. And at that time, you know. Revolution was, I mean, for, for, for my perspective, I'm just, you know, clearly I've been in here, this stuff for a lot of years, but, but when Revolution came around, you became their cinema, their director of photography. It was like, it was one after the other, Mona Lisa Smile, Forgotten. Uh, uh, you were like five in a row, yeah. Yeah, there were five yeah, in a row. row. And, and, and including with, I mean, with Joe Roth, uh, uh, directing. Yep. Yeah. Talk about, talk about that era and, 
And how, I mean, what I'm, what more than anything else, I'm, you know, we all have chapters in our existence. I, I want to go back to Mike Hausman at some point, but I want to zero in a little bit on that period that you were, you were engaged with revolution because it sort of became, it was like, oh, there's another revolution film. Oh, Toss is shooting another film for revolution. You were like one after the other. You'd finish one and you'd probably be prepping for the next pretty much, right? They were in sequence. Pretty much, although I seem to remember time off in between, and I did others, um, but that might not be the case. <clears throat> I mean, I guess part of it is um, I was young, DP, who could do various genres. I could give them the thriller. I could give them a romantic film. I could do comedy um and i've never pigeonholed myself to any of that and that's why my agent shakes his head because i, I tend to i tend to do the exact opposite from one film to another mm -hmm. um like if i'm on a comedy the next thing i want is a dark movie if i'm in a dark dark movie the next thing i want to do is something dram dramatic um and i could you know i um, I, I got along well with the producers. Um, I got along well with directors, um, and I could get the film in on time. You know, so I, I wasn't too precious of a DP in that sense. So if it was a Mona Lisa Smile, I think it was a sixty-two day schedule, and we brought it in in sixty-two days. Uh, Joe Roth's film, I think, it was like a forty-one day schedule, and it was we brought it in in thirty-nine. Um, yeah, Forgotten you know, Freedom Land, Perfect Strangers, yeah. one, two, three, four. Yeah. Yep. So there was part of that, and they knew what the you know I was a known commodity in New York City. So oh, here comes the siren. We let it go by. No, so, well, that's atmospheric. Don't worry about that. Oh, okay, good, good, good. good. So um, no, no, it, it's you just hear it in the background. It's it. it's it's almost like we had a soundtrack in a sense, and we just uh, oh, very nice. We're like a nice, nice little mix. Let's layer in a sound. Let's layer that in the in the back end. Yeah, yeah. So um, so yeah. So that was a period when you know revolution was hot, and they were doing the things, and you know then Joe closed up shop and and moved on and bought a soccer uh, team up in Seattle, I think. So, um, but it was, it was, I have to say it was great fun and it was a great run and we worked with some amazing, you and I together on a bunch of projects and some amazing films, you know, with crew and whatnot. Um, but there was kind of also the end of an era of that size filmmaking. Right. The budget, the budgets, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, top end would be like 80 million and about, and low end it would be like 30. So they all fell between like the 40 to, Mona Lisa was expensive because it was very period and all those women and whatnot. But, um, but the, you know, there was, a, there was a number on that film and they knew I could bring it in for that number that they had budgeted for. And they knew what, you know, they knew I could give it the look. So I, I think that that, that relationship, um, I, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not, the, I don't have the only relationship with studios like that, other camera people. Oh, no, of course not. It just it was a period of time that, that had yeah. a, it was very defined, you know? Yeah, it was, and, and it was all New York. I mean, they seemed to be doing most of their productions here. They had a few out in LA, but for whatever the reason, New York was their go-to, you know? And, and, you know, maybe the tax, I, I don't even know what the tax credit was at the time or what was going on. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, so the, in terms of career and work, you know, it, it's, um, we're, we, we are journeymen, you know, we, we, as soon as we get a job, we think about, okay, what's the next gig? You know, as soon as we wrap, we don't tend to dwell on how great that was. We tend to go, okay, what am I doing next? Um, it is a unusual lifestyle because the work really isn't getting the work, <laughs> you know, okay. uh, the, the, when you get the work, it's like, Yahoo, you know, I, I'm employed. I got a gig. And I don't think there's few cinematographers that don't have that feeling like, yes, I got it, you know? Um, so that's the interesting part of, of um, going back to the very original questions about being impermanent and, um, no matter. and, and uh, yeah, carnival lifestyle and whatnot, you know, it's the, it's that sensibility. Yeah. So the, yeah. So usually on, on on all sorts of forms, I just write down self-employed. <laughs> I love it. Um, tell me the story. There was a story that uh, is behind Man of the Moon uh, on day one. I, I, I read it. I can't remember where I read it. It was probably in a magazine article. But something happened when you were with Mike. Michael Hausman was sort of your advocate on Man on the Moon, and you were about to start. Uh, your day one of shooting, going to the set. There was a call to oh. Well, there's, there's so many stories on Man on the Moon. The big story on Man on the Moon was after 10 weeks of prep, uh, where day one finally arrives, and I'm living in Santa Monica and Marina del Rey, and uh, we're shooting at Universal, and I have a long drive to work, so I drive to work, and I'm alone gets into work, and I look around, and the lot is quiet and I look at my call sheet and it says 8 a.m. I go 7 a.m. What the fuck am I doing here? Excuse my language. And uh, off I go to Jerry's Deli to read what? The New York Times and a cup of coffee because that's going to settle my nerves because I'm a new DP and I can I can show up and operate with my eyes closed but this is like a big taxi set and a lot going on. And so I'm drinking my coffee uh, I paid the bill, I'm driving down Ventura Boulevard, and Dave McGifford calls the first AD, and he goes, Toss, are you far away? I go, no, I'm 20 minutes out, I'll be there in a minute. He goes, oh, oh, okay, okay, good, okay. So I go in the lot, got the badgy thing, park, I have my own parking, it's got director of photography, I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty great. And as I look up and come around the corner, the little red light outside the door is spinning and flashing red. And I think to myself, oh dear. And I look at the call sheet and I had read the shooting call for the call time. So I'm officially now 48 minutes late. And uh, on my first day of shooting, on my first movie as a DP. And uh, I walk in through the door. PAs are trying to stop me. I just go walking in and they're in rehearsal. And I walk, Milos and Michael, or they haven't called action or something yet, and they're both there. And I said, I'm sorry, gentlemen, this will never happen again. And they just give me a look, and Michael goes, just gives me a nod. And it goes back to the story about what I told Danny to start with, because Mitch Dubin had the camera already up, that's the way we discussed. Chris Centrella had the techno crane already built, right where we had discussed it, and it was all going to happen. Jack had already 
had to have done a prelate. We had done it together, but he was just like, you know, hanging out and waiting for a couple bounce cards kind of thing because we had already discussed it. And so again, it was a family effort of collaborators that they didn't know where I was because I wasn't answering my phone or why I wasn't there, but they just made it happen. So, um, we're all ready to go <clears throat> and now it's time to bring um jim carrey in right as as andy's first day and uh we're looking around the light's still going we cut off the light dave goes is he here yet no he's not here yet a bunch of discussions about this and that and forward and backwards and why are we not and who is not and there ain't so my little problems go away right away because you know the main store hasn't arrived Finally, Dave goes, okay, everybody outside. And we go, okay. We troop outside the door and there's a good humor ice cream truck outside. Of which behind the, in the truck is Jim Carrey dressed in a good humor suit. He has driven this truck from Malibu and refuses to come inside until every crew member has been given an ice cream cone and has sung a small little song for said cone. So that's how day one started for me. First, the unrealness of being late and being backed up on it. And secondly, having to sing to Jim Carrey for an ice cream cone before he would come inside. That's fantastic. And, and then lunch, then they called lunch after the rehearsal because it was that late. So then we go to lunch and the first thing that Jim does is he jumps in his car. He drives his car right up against the door of Danny DeVito's trailer, right? Like literally, so Danny can't open up the door, right? Jumps out of his car, gets in Bob Zamuda's car, the actual real Bob Zamuda, and out the gates they go. Oh my God. So I don't think we got much done until four o'clock that day. <laughs> And every day was like that. Every day was like that. And I was a new DP feeling the weight of schedule on me because I knew having worked many features, like, you know, I've seen DPs go too slow, going not fast enough, you know, this, we're not going to make our day, this and that. I mean, I knew, I knew the responsibilities of what that meant. It wasn't about just the lighting. It was about can you get the work done in the amount of time and how to do it. So I was, I was in fear of my job every day. Every day, because every day we would we'd only be shooting four hours a day, including the time we got thrown off Paramount's lot because um, Tony Clifton, Jim Carrey as Tony Clifton, we're shooting at Paramount's lot now because it's an exterior and taxi took place at Paramount <coughs> and not at Universal. So we're on Paramount's lot. We're waiting for Jim as Tony Clifton to arrive, and the next thing we know, we're on a stage four security guards come up with their little carts, tell us to down tools, literally outside the stage, because we need the exterior, said Paramount and whatnot. And they escort us to Melrose Avenue, the entire hundred people of our film crew. We are now standing on Melrose outside the gate and we, they won't let us in. And finally we find a you know, producer finally comes, Michael Hausman comes, David Gifford comes, the AD, and what we have discovered is that Jim Carrey, as Tony Clifford, has gone up to the executive dining room, remained in character, 
and took Limburger cheese and smeared it all over Sherry Lansing's suit and hair. Oh and my so God. So therefore, the entire film crew was persona non grata, so we were asked to leave. Pat McCardle, we were allowed to go get our cars, and Pat goes, I got to go back in, I got to go put the camera away. So they allowed us to put the camera inside the stage, and then we went home, and we shut down for a day, I think, while they renegotiated. And it turned out that because Jim was doing the Ron Howard film next, which was the Grinch, and that was a Paramount movie. So people talked to people and people talked to other people and all of a sudden everything was forgiven. But yeah, we have more stories off that film accumulatively in one day than I had in 20 years as a career as an operator. Incredible. So, but the film is a good film. Yeah. And Jim Carrey is actually incredible in it. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I actually did a, an episode on, on this very podcast with Michael Hausman. Uh, he's such a great guy. He talked about his career doing pretty much every film that, that Milos ever made. Yeah, pretty much every film that Milos did. I think it was, I don't think he did the, the one, I don't think he did Goya. Incredible career of, of work. Incredible career, incredible guy. Yeah, a character. Oh. Yep. Well, Captain. So, um, yeah, going back to uh, one of the things that I, I found interesting about, you know, you, obviously you had relationships with Haskell and, 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 and Philip Russolo and, and mentors, cinematographers, those that you admired, those that you worked with. Haskell also uh, came partly from a, a, a documentary tradition as well. He had a documentary background. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating to me is that your, your world enters into becoming a director of photography as uh, an operator and, and, and Steadicam operator. Once again, uh, all about handheld and physical movement, movement of the camera, the camera on you. Um, the, the, the documentary world is built on, 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 on all of the things that were part of especially part of your Steadicam handheld life, right? Because, you know, it's, you know, in the in documentary, it's capturing Verite, which you wouldn't use a Steadicam for necessarily. You'd use a, a handheld rig, but you're, you're, you're moving physically with a scene. And, uh, and I would imagine that Haskell uh, and, and certain people that you worked with had a, a, a tremendous love for the roots of, of, of documentary and, and what it means to capture moments that feel real. Part of it is, um, again, musical background. And I probably operated 150 music videos. All right. You know, and probably, I mean, I, I've sh I remember I've shot a Phil Collins music video. I did a Whitney Houston as a DP way back way before I was ever doing it on feature films, I had dipped my toe a little bit into the DP world by doing music videos. So you were doing music videos for a lot of years then? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, all during my operating career, for sure. I mean, you know, if there was a gig, I was on it. You know, if there was a documentary, I was on it. I, I just enjoy filmmaking. So, um, and even to this day, um, 
I take projects because I find them. Yeah, I take projects because I need to put money in the bank account. There's no question about that. But also, if it's an interesting gig, I'm on it. You know, that's it. If somebody calls me up and says, I got something that's really interesting, I said, I'm interested. Um, so part of my whole camera movement thing comes from also reacting to music, being part of the music and understanding what the rhythm of a scene is and why. And, and, and how does an actor approach a scene? Because you know, an actor approaches a scene the same way a song or a singer sings the lyrics. You know, without having the emotion behind those words, it means meaningless, just, you know, just a bunch of words. So, um, yeah, I think I honed those skills uh, and I honed the intuitiveness of watching actors and people and how they look and where they move and what, what the tells are. And some of it is just, you know, it's just um, observational. And I think that's why those guys also appreciated the Steadicam stuff, which was, I was doing Steadicam for like Ages of Innocence, Last Mohicans, um, all sorts of stuff. Um, and all that is just, you know, you walk in, you see a scene, and when you're doing Steadicam, it's like, okay, we would like you to shoot this on a 50 because the director and the DP and the operator have already conferred about it. But you're pretty much a one-man band. In terms of the camera should be here, should be there, should be high, it should be low, it should be moving this fast, it should be moving this slow. You know, you, 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 we would go through a rehearsal and it would be, I'd be watching what they were doing, they, the crew, because I was a day player, you, you, you know, very rarely. When I first started doing Steadicam, you didn't have the position A camera slash Steadicam. And you certainly didn't have the position B camera slash Steadicam that only became a position as Steadicam operators became more adept. And there was very few people who were operator who went to do Steadicam. There was, wasn't much of them. There was, uh, I'm trying to remember, um, Dan, uh, Danny Lerner. Uh, Ted Churchill was never a KA operator. Larry McConkie only became an A operator on like one movie, I think, maybe two. Um, it just wasn't that dynamic. I mean, I was I became a operator because uh, one, I wanted to operate and be ultimately and be a DP. So I would take the pay cut just so I could be the A operator. But in any case, getting back to like moving the camera would be like you have to be in tune to what you were doing, and there was years of, you know, years of. Um, uh, observation and, and understanding and watching movies and being on sets and tell me a story in the steadicam world since we've really i mean for for lack of a better word you've done so many steadicam gigs yeah story about one of them or more than one of them that was particularly challenging and how and what you had to do. Like, I, I, I remember Steadicam scenes, not that on films that you were on, but one, one of my favorites was probably with Larry McConkie and Ted Churchill on Alan Parker's film, Birdie. Uh, that was Ted that did the Steadicam on Ted, that. Uh, yeah. uh, Ted did the Steadicam on, on Birdie, that. Larry and I did the Skycam together. So you were on Birdie as well. Wow. Yeah, when we plowed the, the sky cam down into the dirt. Yeah, I was on Birdie. Yeah. See that I, I was that, that shot that you used. I now shot right yeah, before it hits. Yeah. yeah. 
because you're capturing you're capturing that light. That was me. That to me, that's one of the most important Steadicam shots in cinema. I mean, it, it, it it's fantastic. It was it was um, a a really difficult production uh, that, that because it was a piece of equipment in in its infancy. Right. If you can imagine uh, the baud rate of our motors was forty, not forty megahertz, not forty kilohertz, forty hertz. <laughs> so these, which is very quite slow, it's slower than your heartbeat. That's how slow it is. <laughs> it's it's so slow that the the motors are just trying to get themselves updated. You know, would they would update themselves uh, to positionally in space um, once every quarter second, which is not fast at all. The computers that we were using was a, a Radio Shack RS two thirty two. Does that mean a number to you? Oh my God. That means something to you, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Okay, it was the original laptop, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It literally, I think, had a 15K memory? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of nice. So, so imagine this technology. The 80s now. Yeah, trying to put together. It was so far ahead of its time in terms of the technology, but not in terms of the concept. So anyway, there was a time when, and the way we used to put them up is that, you know, it works on, you tell a computer where it is in space by measuring the pick point to the center of your zone. And then by literally Pythagoras theorem, you know, the A squared B squared equals C, the C squared theorem, once you know how high it is and once then you'll know how long that piece of string ought to be and that way you'll know where it is in space it's really quite simple you know like so um but what has to remain constant is the height and on birdie we had used four construction cranes and we used to measure it with something called a theodolite which is something who knew that i was never use this in my life but it is the surveyor's instrument that accurately measures distances by triangulation if it's that high and it's this far away then that that's where that thing must be in space right four of those so off we we set it up in the morning we do a rehearsal it goes wonderfully well we lock off the cranes but unknown to us these are like 130 foot construction cranes unknown to us the hydraulics in a crane slip So when we came back from lunch and time to go do this thing, it dropped about six inches on each one. And, uh, I, you know, our fault, not remeasuring, but those six inches when translated over the size of a football field brought that custom-made magnesium ARRI 2C by Panavision camera. Custom-made casing, magnesium. They literally milled out a 2C out of magnesium for us because it had to be lightweight. And... Um, it clipped the top of a car, <laughs> abandoned car, uh, because I tilted it down too high, too much, or because it was too low, and that was the shot. And yeah, and anyway, so that was a crash and a burn, but um, but nobody was hurt, and, um, and the shot ended up in the film. 
and 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 that shot ended up in the film, the one where it crashed. Yeah, then we we, we smashed the camera. At that point, we had to send it back to Panavision to reweld it with magnesium or whatever they do to magnesium. Okay, and and just so I know, because I'm gonna, you know, I mean, I'm I'm one of these people that will go back to watch Birdie again. I think I own it. This is the one where it goes from the the from Matthew Modine's room right down and goes. It flies. It, there's it's a it's an experience of flight, right? Correct. There's two cuts to it. <coughs> Matthew Modine's room in a street, and then up high over a field. Right. And again, I haven't seen this forever. And it's over the field shot that is the one that took the tumble. That's the um, one I'm talking about, though. That's the emblematic one where it goes yeah, that's the one. The field. But I, I've also, you know, I've crashed and burned on Steadicam shots before too. You know, I mean, uh, Ages of Innocence. Uh, I think it was take what what felt like 17 what was probably only 11 on a cold winter day carrying uh i think that was anamorphic and big fucking lenses um icy step i was following jeremy irons either up or down or michelle pfeiffer or somebody i don't know who it was uh and my brain was full of uh, full of cold and tiredness and i missed my step and i remember on the way down i had the choice of falling and protecting the gear or not protecting the gear. And I made a conscious decision and the uh, 50 mil lens ended up right through the gate and into the body and into the visual mechanism. Because, um, you know, sometimes you just can't pull out a disaster. Yeah, but you wanted, you, you also were, after that fall, you were able to work the next day, clearly. Or you were not. Oh, I was able to work the next day. You know, I mean, you know, they, they, you know, Marty, I, I think, got the shot, I guess, because it's in the movie. It might not have been the exact shot that he wanted, but it was, uh, we had some version of it. But, you know, um, yeah. Everybody has a thing. You know, it was interesting. Um, the, the working with different directors and working with their style and working within their 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 parameters is one thing about being a day player was one thing about being a steady cam operator is you had to really switch gears so it was like oh working with that today okay that's that team it's you know it's the heather norton with michael and you know florian uh team on on that show uh, or oh look okay i'm now going to the john seal you know, Australian dude show, uh, which is a totally different dynamic, you know, uh, and the, the personalities involved and everything else. So it was great training to be chameleon like. So, and then I hooked up with Rissolo and, and we did seven movies together because um, we both have the same sense of humor. Yeah. Although he was a mentor that, that was, I remember, um, day two no it was the end of day one it was sometime after lunch day one summer's day first movie i did with him i got hired on the telephone and i probably got hired because because I, I peppered my english with a modicum of french you know and also i was somewhat continental i've lived on the you know in, in europe and whatnot so it was a familiar for him for his second american film um and i remember he was setting up a shot and I was chat chatting with him as he was adjusting a flag. And he said, Oh, Lutas, is this flag in? And I go, Oh, let me go back to the camera. I'll let you know. And he gave me a look as only a Parisian can look at an American as if, 
I just made him step in, you know, dog excrement. I mean, it was that total Parisian look. And, and he gives me this look and he says, use your knowledge of optics and let me know if my flag is in your shot. And he said it in such a way as a challenge, which made me recognize that that game, I had to up my level up to here. Because, you know, Philippe was a classically trained cinematographer with a tremendous knowledge of optics and how and why it works and what the field of views are and everything about a lens. And, you know, he's, a, he's he is as much as a technician as he is an artist. You know, all that shows through is his artistry and he's a fantastic musician and a wonderful writer. Um, but he's also an amazing technician and, and um, a theorist. And I recognize is that, yeah, I should know from right where I'm standing, whether that 75 mil is in, I'm in it, you know, I should know it. And then when it goes to a 50, I should know it, I should walk over there. That's where a 50 would be. Um, so that was the kind of guys that, you know, um, I hung around with and hopefully the kind of guys, kind of things that, I, I talked to young operators about too, you know. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I remember uh, the story about Philippe is is fantastic because I I do remember one occasion. I mean, I I I was you know engaged in a few projects, the Brave One, Sherlock Holmes, a few projects, right. not. And I remember specifically on the on the Brave One, he was shooting at very very low light, and uh, there were. Uh, and I and 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 therefore low depth of field. He was he was pushing all the way to the limit of depth of field. And the first three or four weeks, I don't know how many focus pullers got got axed along the way. But I but I witnessed this, as you refer to it, the the photo optic precision, right, of the way he worked, right. And it was like, but also. But also, he wanted to go and wanted to go exactly where the visual scene need, needed to go for every aspect. If he needed blur in the background, boy, it was going to be blur and lack of feel. He, he, really he was not the kind to compromise on that. No, he, did, yeah. he didn't compromise on like, no, he knew. And also, he had the experience and, and worked with the kinds of talent that could give him what he wanted. When we did some really shallow depth of field stuff on Vampire and Mary Riley, uh, we had a, okay, I'm trying to remember his name. There was Dougie, uh, yeah, um, Milson, Dougie Milson's son was our second. I can't remember the first name, but in any case, he had come up with a system where he had, put the, this focus puller had a range finding camera set up at right angles to the scene on a video. And he would mark the assistant on his screen right by the camera what the feet and inches were. Right. So on his, he would always know that the eyeball was four inches away, six feet, four inches, because it was it was marked beforehand. So there was, he, so Philippe was always aware of the, the um, inventiveness of what you needed to do to get the shot. You know, and if you didn't, if you didn't have the chops to come up with that kind of inventiveness, then, um, you know, next. So somehow I managed to, you know, amuse him enough to stay for seven movies. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. He, he, he was, uh, and I, and I remember seeing him on set once and, 
and as you say, I, I didn't really ever see him play, but there was always during breaks, there was a, like a, an acoustic guitar. Yeah. Because he would, uh, and I remember the producer uh, on Sherlock Holmes said, oh yeah, he takes breaks and he plays guitar on breaks. I'm like, you know, these are like things like, like little things. It's always, to me, it's the shape of someone's life that makes the entire experience interesting, right? He always talked to me about travel and how, like you, the same way that you, you've communicated, worldly exposure makes you able to, to kind of live and inhabit the world that we inhabit, in a sense, right? Because your storytelling uh, is, is about uh, uh, having global uh, sophistication, exposure, and all of that not being tied to, to, uh, to being uh, uh, in one place. We can, we can imagine... But, but also live an experience. And I think he, he was so emblematic of that. He sounds, when you talk about it, it's sort, of, it's sort of, it sounds like Philippe talking too. Yeah, 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 a little bit. Yeah, for sure, for sure. You know, and it's, it's still such a wonderful journey. I mean, um, at the moment I have my son now operating, which was a wonderful, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's world. great. So you're operating family on, great. Uh, he does steady cam and he operates and, uh, it's a wonderful, um, validation, if you will, for a career choice that I took, you know, um, it, when your child decides that it's interesting and worthy and, a, um, to, 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 to follow as well, you know, because he didn't, he went to, he didn't do it because I had him on a truck or anything. He, he already, he had gone to Tufts University as a poli-sci major, went to LA, worked at WME uh, for a while as an agent's assistant, you know, uh, then went over to HBO as an executive six assistant. And he re realized, he says, okay, that wasn't for him, you know. He, so he, he, um, he came back from the dark side, <laughs> as I say, when he goes to WME, how dark can you get? Um, Anyway, so it's, it, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's with great joy that I, um, that I collaborate with them. Well, that's wonderful. Um, the future, where we are, where we are before we, before we bid adieu, cinematography, theatrical life, the theatrical life of our business in general, movie theaters just opened up outside New York City on October 23rd. I had a movie that opened up. Bombed. Well, but theater's opening is beautiful. I'm a cinema fan. <laughs> the fact that it opened is good, yes. Everything is boarded shut in Manhattan and the, and the boroughs. Uh, apparently back on August 28th or something like that, theaters started to open up. I've had many conversations with people about, as we talk about Zoom and the, and, and the new normal and social isolation, we're all going to be hungry for the cinema again. Uh, 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 you've worked to a certain extent in broadcast working on, on Quantico and uh, what was it, the other series that you did, Ambitious or? Yeah. Right, so you've done a couple of TVs, but that's not really been a, 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 a center point of your life. You've done mostly uh, 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 theatrical feature films and, 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 and all format length projects, uh, narrative projects, and, and you've done some documentary shooting over the years as well and you did music yep. videos so you've done the gamut but at the end of the day uh 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 the the world has become 
uh, at a very high production value for, for streaming television. Um, I mean, I just saw a, a project on Netflix called uh, Oktoberfest Beer and Blood that was shot in Germany. And I was like, oh my God, this is, you know, incredible production value. And, and television has upped its game in general in the U.S. and Europe and, and, and all over. But, but what's your feeling uh, uh, and, and what is your passion um, uh, and instinct about the, the future of, of the big screen and then also your passion about shooting and whether or not it requires the big screen for what you do. I mean, do, 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 are you, you're, you, you make beautiful images no matter where they go. I think um, it's a multifaceted question, but I think that we have to look at history in a uh, very broad and long-term eye. This pandemic <coughs> has only lasted eight, nine months now, which in the span of history is nothing. What humans do and have done since the beginning of time is gather in caves and pound drums and tell stories. They've gathered in makeshift theaters and told stories and sang songs. They've gathered in auditoriums to tell stories and say songs. Because the experience of the collective is greater than the experience of the singular. People go to listen to live music live with a crowd because of the collective. They go to Broadway and they jam themselves in those tiny little seats because of the collective. And I do believe that cinema having its origins in the collective, a theater full of people laughing, crying, or screaming, we're all on the Polanski's Rosemary's Baby going to lean around the doorpost, is a fundamental DNA-activated emotion. I think that all that's going to return. I don't think that our music is only going to be viable through streaming and Apple. I think as soon as it's safe to do so as a health-wise, people are going to go off to huge concerts again. They're going to go to small bars again. I think that people are going to go to the theater again. People are going to go to poetry readings again. People are going to go out to restaurants. Even as basic as food, we go out to eat, not because the food there is possibly better, but it's there because it's a collective experience within a restaurant with other people. So I don't think you can take the socialization or this, the, 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 need for, the need for socialization out of cinema and out of the story narrative storytelling. So even though it's two different things, yes, Netflix and streaming and all that, what you say is correct. Um, and being in the intimacy of your room, there is also a, a, a need for us to get our mythology in a collective way and netflix i'm going to watch a movie with you deal that they have doesn't quite work because i've tried it you know just the same way that video streaming doesn't trying this if you and i were sitting at a table just right now we would have a very different sensibility in terms of what this was it would might be recorded but our interaction would be very different 
Yes. You know? And so that's why I think that my overall outlook is A, believe in science, because science got us this far. And, and smart scientists got us this far and smart scientists got us healthy and they got rid of smallpox and they got rid of the mumps and they got, you know, I traveled all around the world and I don't have diphtheria. I don't have yellow fever. I don't have cholera. I took my vaccinations. Yes. I don't have hep A, hep B, hep C. I took my vaccinations. Yes. Um, and, no and why don't I have those? Because of, because of a, a, group, a dedicated group of people. And so I think that to look at this, my work within that context is like, yeah, I think that I'm going to be going out to eat again and I'm going to go run and catch a movie with a buddy. Why? Because that is what we like to do. We like to share that, that, that experience and the shared experience in a separate place, rather in my home is very different indeed. And it, it, but it's also about the making though, isn't it? Cause when we make, we make for the big screen, we don't make for the small screen, but, 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 but we do, we do imagine for the large screen. Do we not? When we shoot. We do, absolutely. And, and I think that will come back again. I think the few filmmakers that are still making for the big screen, the Chris Nolans, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and those of us who make for the big screen, I mean, the reason I don't do television is two reasons. One of them is um, I have to push away part of my brain that's not big screen. In other words, the, my, the attention to detail and the minutia is not as, is not as apparent in, in serialized television, you know? Not, not limited series, but serialized. So, okay, we're going to do 27 episodes this year, 13, whatever. That's one. And two, the kind of storytelling they tell is very different. You know, serials tell you stories that, by definition, its main thrust to have you come back next week as a viewer. That's right. That, that's what you're there for. So whatever, whatever you're putting into it, it's, it's make sure they come back next, next week. Cinema does not do that. Cinema, for the most part, even on open-ended stories, lets the viewer leave with the idea that the story, as told by the filmmakers, is complete, whether or not the questions it raises are, are still open. And that's why I also don't do a whole lot of, I mean, not, not why, I don't do Marvels because they don't call me to do Marvels. <laughs> but, uh, but it's a different kind of storytelling. You know, Marvels become a storytelling of a serial storytelling on a just bigger scale because you can make a billion dollars. You know, and that's why we put that little tease in the end. But anyway, that was, that's my little uh, two cents and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think this is a beautiful place uh, uh, in, in my world to, uh, to, I mean, we, we have covered so much. I, I, uh, we could talk for hours more, but I think, uh, and there are so many filmmakers that we've, we've, we've left out of our, of our conversation. We can't possibly cover every single person that you've worked with Toss after nope. many years. It's not possible. But, but I will say, uh, uh at the foundation of it all, uh, uh, the one thing that I always like to to to, to tee off and 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 bid adieu with is is that at the at the foundation of our careers we did and do have a love of 
of cinema, love of making images, a love of visual arts, a love of storytelling. And, uh, and, and to me, uh, uh, the, 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 we, we, we await the future and we, and we live and experience the current. Um, yeah, but, yes. uh, but, 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 but as you say, this is a blip of time and I look forward to the day when this blip is over, but, but, uh, uh but nonetheless, the, uh, I, I, I love what you say about, about all aspects of the passion of the social experience. I can't think of a better way to close this episode of conversations with Charlie, with Utah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Charlie. Take care. Thank you, brother.